Welcome to FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features founding pastor Ken Werlein, and it was recorded on Easter Sunday, April 17th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at info at faithbridge.org. If you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. You can always join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Ken. Well, happy Easter, everybody. Welcome in this room. Welcome on the east side. Welcome online. However it is that you're here, we're really glad that you're here. Why don't you take your Bibles? We'll go to Luke chapter 24. And if you need a Bible, you can wave at one of the ushers. They'll be glad to let you borrow one or keep it if you need. And you can certainly use your devices as well. Just uh, put in Luke 24 and that'll get you where we're going. In the meanwhile, while you're turning, I want to... uh, I want to uh, revisit a tradition that was part of the early church where the priest would come out and he would say, Christ is risen on Easter. And the congregation would say with great gusto, he's risen indeed. All right, so I'll play the priest, you play the congregation. How about that? Here we go. Christ is risen. On both rooms and online. Christ is risen. A little bit more. Christ is risen. He is risen Amen. Now, here's the question that I want to talk with you about. Do you believe that? Yes. Some of you say, yes, I do. Others of you, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. And some of you are saying, look, I didn't come here to really think. I just came here to make her happy. So can we just kind of get through this? Well, I'll, just, I'll tell you, I've preached a lot of Easter sermons uh, in my life, but this year is the first where I find myself not just speaking as the preacher, but also as one who's giving a witness, a personal witness to the powerful truth of the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. And I'll tell you why, because a month ago, my wife's mother, Wanda, uh, finally passed away. She'd had a 13-year journey battle with lung cancer. And as we came into this weekend, it occurred to us, um, we've had a lot of Easter's after church in her home. And so this one feels a little different. Um, And a lot of you have gone through that. Maybe some of you are going through that right now. Um, But when someone close uh, dies, for a while your brain is is, is just, you know, our brains weren't really made to deal with death. That's not how it was created in the beginning. And so you get exhausted at the end of the day, but you can't really sleep so well at night. And then when you get to a holiday, it feels like it's a big jigsaw puzzle and there's a big old honking piece in the middle that is missing now. And I share this because... Um, it struck me that while studying for our text today, this is exactly what Jesus' friends and followers were feeling themselves. Because they'd watched their friend and Lord Jesus um, plummet from palm branch popularity to the pits in just five days. Now he's scorned, now he's shamed, now he's whipped, now he's beaten, now he's bleeding, now he's dragging across 
through the streets of Jerusalem. And those same friends and followers watch him get crucified, nailed to that cross, and then that cross gets raised upright and putting, putting the person into a position of suffocating. That's really how the death went and why it was so torturous with crucifixion. And most of his friends scampered off into the dark because they were scared that they would be next. But the few who remained with him to the end and watched him die stayed and helped take his body off the cross and got him wrapped up and buried. But their hearts were heavy. Their souls were despondent. They were grieving. They were confused. They were hopeless. Um, and one of those followers who I want to look at today, his name was Cleopas. We don't know a whole lot about Cleopas or a friend who was with him other than that they were from a village called Emmaus and that they had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover and they had seen all that happened. They'd gone through what I just described and Saturday was a long day and I'm sure they weren't sleeping very well themselves those couple of nights. By Sunday morning... Cleopas and his friends said, we're, we're going we're gonna to head on back to Emmaus at this point. Now, just before leaving for Emmaus, a few of the ladies had gone to the tomb and they were taking spices, I suppose, kind of like we take flowers when we go to the cemetery. And they came running back saying, he's risen. But Cleopas, he was a smart guy. And smart people have a tendency to, to know that dead people have a tendency to stay dead. So he wasn't really buying that. They said, we're out of here. They hit the road to Emmaus. Let's start in verse 14, chapter 24. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, Cleo and his friend. And they talked as they talked <clears throat> and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he, Jesus, we know the reader, they didn't know, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked them, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? And Jesus asks, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people and the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came back and told us that they've seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And then in verse 25, he, Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I want to pause there. I want to make the first of two observations today. Two things I really want to make sure that we see. So if you're a note taker, here's the first one. What was Jesus doing? First thing he's doing here is he's challenging the superficiality of their faith. 
He's challenging the superficiality of their faith. I've never seen this before, and I've even preached on this text several Easter's uh, in the past. Typically, we focus on how pastoral and kind and gentle Jesus was, just letting him talk it all out. And what things are you talking about? But my eyes really fell on verse 25 this time. What does he do? He says, how foolish you are. That's a word in the original language that means silly. It's the same word that Paul is going to use when he writes the Galatians. You foolish Galatians, what's gotten into your brains? What are you thinking? And so he's, he's kind of uh, being strong with them. And the reason I say this is because I just have a sneaking suspicion that if you're here today and you are a skeptic, that maybe one of the reasons that you're kind of a skeptic about Christianity or Christians is that some of your Christian friends, they say, Oh, Jesus is my Lord, he's my Savior, he's my all in all, and Jesus takes the wheel and all that kind of stuff. But as you study their lives, you don't see any serious difference between how they handle their life's problems and how you handle your life's problems. And it's because American Christians are by and large infected with what um, Paul David Tripp says is an epidemic of functional atheism, meaning... We Christians, we, we believers, we believe all of the right things theologically, but at the functional, practical level, we act no different than the non-believers. And so many of us Christians, people who say, Jesus is my Lord and all, we're just as greedy, we're just as insecure, we're just as lustful and prideful and envious and edgy and rude and nervous and worried. And, and when life gets hard, we don't so much turn to God's word for strength and fortification as we turn to pouring ourselves another drink to take the edge off. And yet we keep saying, but Jesus is, in, is my Lord and he's in control and he's good all the time. And, and if you're a skeptic, I just bet you've looked at a few Christians doing that. And you say, you know, the thing about you guys is that your doctrine and your lifestyle, they don't sync up. It isn't that what you call a hypocrite? And I say all this because Cleopas and his friend they were supposed to be God-fearing believers who knew the scriptures. But they're acting just as hopeless and despondent as the next person. They're not turning to God's word. They're not turning to the scriptures that they believe in, even after telling the stranger who we know the identity of, that they'd heard that very morning that the tomb was empty. And so Jesus doesn't hold back with them. He says, how foolish you are. And slow to believe all that the prophets have said. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he's saying, guys, how can you, two of the chosen people, how can you be so hopeless? How can you be so clueless? about the scriptures. Read the word, boys. Everything that you've just been sobbing to me about was prophesied, was predicted hundreds of years ago. It all had to happen this way. And so Jesus takes them where all of us should naturally go when we feel ourselves are being overwhelmed by the circumstances of life to God's word. 
He does a Bible study with them. Jesus does this. They're walking along for a couple of hours. He's like, I got to teach you guys the word. Now, we don't know where he goes. Maybe he took them to Isaiah 53. Maybe he took them to Deuteronomy 18 or Psalm 16 or Psalm 22. Some of the passages that were predicting a Messiah, not that it would come with great might and force and power and killing the Roman government. That's what, that's what they were looking for. But some of the passages are right there. They were saying the Messiah would be a suffering servant led like sheep to the slaughter, pierced in his hands and feet, killed on a tree, taken down before sunset, abandoned to the grave. It's all right there. Prophecies that had been written hundreds of years prior. Why was he doing this? Because the only way that we bring our lifestyle into alignment with our doctrine is that we get back to the word, our source, to the promises of God. Because only if we have God's promises and God's word stored up in our hearts and minds can we draw on it when the circumstances of life bear down on us. Now, I know some of you are saying, I'd like to do that. But whenever I try to read the Bible, it doesn't go so well. And I usually make it about as far as Leviticus, and that's usually about the end of it. And, and so I'd say, let's just jump on over Leviticus and you get to the New Testament. That's, that's why we're here, friends. That's why this year we're going through the book of Luke, right there in the New Testament, section by section. That's why we have small groups, and we're always starting new groups and micro groups, discipleship groups that you can get into, where you can actually ask questions and wrestle with. And we have a class called Starting Point. That's an eight-week class, and it's a great place. Right if you're at the start and you have, especially if you're skeptical or cynical and you've got some zingers that you want to ask, that's the perfect place to do it. So sign up for Starting Point, faithbridge.org slash starting point. And, and bring that with you. Because, see, you can't make progress if you don't, don't start taking a step towards the truth of God's word. Otherwise, you might say, I believe, but your doctrine and your lifestyle will always be way out of alignment, like a terribly aligned car. And you'll find yourself, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, like the, the, the winds and the wave blowing and the house comes crashing in and yours will come crashing in all the time when the circumstances of life bear down upon you. Like finances and like your job and like your marriage and like your parenting and your kids and, and, and your health. And, 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 and look, I'm not making light of any of your circumstances because I realize you all have circumstances, even as I would hope that you wouldn't make light of my circumstances. But believer, if we really believe what we're celebrating today, that Jesus came and that then he conquered the worst thing that can ever happen to us, death and that because he's had that victory, his victory becomes ours. And all we have to do is throw the lasso around his victory and pull it into our present circumstance every single day. Believer, why would we keep acting as hopeless as the non-believer? Now, some of you who are skeptics, you're like, 
That's right, pastor. Keep sucking it to them, man. You're telling them everything I always wanted to tell my Christian friends, all right? Best Easter sermon I ever heard. All right, now, I'm going to flip the coin over, and I want to challenge you. If you're not a believer and you're a skeptic, and that was not really in our text, it's really in every text, and you need to know this truth, and that is if you're not a person of faith in Christ, then you have a different problem. It's not that your problem is that your uh, lifestyle and your doctrine are out of alignment with each other. No, your problem is a deeper problem. That is, sooner or later, you're going to find, uh, face the fact that all of us, including you, have rebelled against God spiritually. Whether or not you realize it, you've shaken your fist at God in the ways that you handle others, in the ways that you handle your ethics, your morals, your, your thoughts, your language, your marriage, your children, everything. And that's why Romans 3 says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin is not a small thing, friends. Sin is what separates us from God. It separates us from each other. Because it keeps us from experiencing the fullness of life and love that he came to give to us. And so ultimately, sin is the very reason why we are dead spiritually and why we die physically. And it's why we do the things that we do, sin is. It's why we eat too much, and why we drink too much, and why we shop too much, and why we spin too much, and why we gaze at stars and study horoscopes and so many other things. Why? Because we're convinced that somehow if I do these sorts of things, maybe it'll bring me back to a little bit more of a sense of life and I'll feel a little bit less dead. But none of those things will work. The only thing that will work is turning to the one who was walking alongside these two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, who says, I would like to walk with you as well if you'd let me. He's the only one, friends, who ever came to live the life of sinless perfection that you couldn't live. He's the only one who ever offered to die in your place, taking the punishment that you deserved. And he's the only one who ever conquered the grave that you would never hope to conquer. And he's the only one who says, if you'll just tether yourself to me, my victory can be your victory. My life can be infused into you and you'll have life abundant and everlasting as well. If you'll just give your heart and your life over to me. So, now that Jesus has opened up the scriptures as he's walking along and talking with them. What happens next? Look at verse 28. And as they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. Don't keep walking into the night, stranger. I mean, it might not be safe out there. You know, why don't you come on in? So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he broke bread, gave thanks. He took bread, broke he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. Now, that brings up two questions that we have to answer. The first question is, how do you suppose they only then finally recognized who he was? Interesting commentators, scholars say different things. Some say maybe it was the way that he, was, he prayed. Maybe it's the way he kind of took over as the host, even though he's really the guest. 
I think most agree that verses 30 and 31 are actually telling us that there was something about when he gave them the bread, their eyes surely fell upon something that made their hearts stand still. Nail holes in his resurrected body. And it would have been there that they realized, oh my gosh, our Savior has been with us, walking along with us this whole time. Sort of like Desmond Doss. Did you ever see his story? I came through the room the other night and my two sons were watching Hacksaw Ridge. It's a great film about Desmond Doss, a young man who enlisted to serve in the army because he wanted to serve his country in World War II. The only unique thing was he's a pacifist. It's a little weird if you sign up to kill people, but you're a pacifist, right? So he signs up in the army. The sergeant, the captain, the platoon, they don't know what to do with this guy. So they're beating him up and abusing him and making life miserable. They're throwing shoes at him while he's having a devotional time and praying and, and things like that. And, and, and they beat him to a pulp. I mean, he's bleeding, but they cannot get him to go home. He just keeps taking it and, and staying. Why? Because he wants to serve his country. How are you going to serve the country if you're not going to kill anybody? Because I want to be a medic, he said. I don't want to kill anybody, but I want to help anybody who almost has been killed, who's been injured. And I'll be there to help them. And so determined to serve as a medic, they finally let him go along and, 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 they go, and the platoon goes to Okinawa where they have to scale a steep, jagged cliff to the top, and that's what's called Hacksaw Ridge, where thousands of Japanese soldiers are awaiting them and they unleash the floodgates of hell on these American soldiers as they're coming up and over. And many of the Americans get killed, but some of them manage to stay alive at the top, including Doss, who fakes like he's dead until the cover of night. And then when he was at nighttime, he began to slowly, carefully, quietly move from victim to victim trying to figure out who's alive and who's dead. And the ones who were still alive, he began to slowly drag their bodies to the edge of Hexall Ridge. And then he would take ropes and he would tie their bodies with ropes and he begins to lower them down to the bottom where finally the medics at the bottom awaken to the miracle that's happening up there and they start receiving the bodies that are coming down and they just start triaging them in to the clinic. And when it's all said and done, the next morning, he has rescued 75 of the very men who had bullied and beat him up during training. And there they are praising him. He, their savior had been among them the whole time. They just didn't recognize him. And that's Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And though it's not in the text, I have to imagine that when Jesus saw them connecting the dots and their eyes go to his face, I bet he was sporting a big smile. And then it says he disappeared. And in the next verse which maybe we'll look at next Easter. He reappears. Yeah, you see where we're going. So uh, he reappears in the room where all the disciples are, and he just kind of comes through the wall. And so this begs a theological question. What do we believe as Christians about teleporting or phasing? And as I've already hinted, 
we just aren't going to have time to talk about the day. So I'm so sorry. But I tell you this much, it does make me all the more excited about one day when I get my resurrection body, right? Because there's something there that we really kind of hard, have a hard time wrapping our minds around on this side. But we see in Jesus' resurrected body something that's very unique and distinct and rather exciting, I think. So in verse 32, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? And then they got up and at once they returned to Jerusalem, even though it's nighttime now, even though they've walked seven miles, that's a pretty good hike, they're gonna go back seven miles on foot at night. What about nighttime animals? What about nighttime robbers? Who cares? If Jesus is alive, nothing else matters anymore. Everything is different today and forever. And there they found the 11 with those and those who were with them assembled together saying, the Lord has indeed, uh, has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon and then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, which leads to the other thing that I want to make sure that you see today. Jesus sets these two on a new trajectory. He sets them on a totally new trajectory, new hope, new joy, new purpose, new courage, new calling, new peace that surpasses all understanding. They can't sit still because their hearts and their minds have been raised to life. They've met the risen Christ. And, and it wasn't just those two who met the risen Christ. No, no, no. Because Jesus was also making some other appearances and visiting some of his other friends and followers. And they're seeing him. So the Apostle Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he actually showed up and, and, and more than 500 people actually got to see the resurrected Christ. And, and many of them would get to eat with him and talk with him and touch him. And, and so this was a very significant thing that was going on here before he would go back to heaven, which really changed everything for those lives, which what I'd like for you to see here has everything to do with our life. Let me explain. Some of you right now, you're like, okay. It's a good story. It's inspiring. But really, how do you know it's true? How do you know it really happened? I say, easy. Just read history. And I don't mean biblical history. I don't even mean church history. I just mean history history. Just read secular history and read about how did this little group of Christians come into existence? How did that happen? How can you explain several hundred hopeless, frightened, hiding friends of Jesus who were leading otherwise inconsequential lives in the margins of society, never to be heard from, never famous, and overnight they're transformed from cowering mice to confident, courageous men and women brimming with hope and marching out, proclaiming triumph and victory in a world that is still just as broken and no different otherwise than the world was the day before. And furthermore, when the government decided they, they're going to put the squeeze in on them and, and they start pushing in on the Christians and say, stop it, admit it. It's all a hoax. If you don't admit it was a hoax, they were going to kill you. And the Christians would say, oh, no, it's not a hoax. <laughs> We've seen him, and he really is alive. 
And because he's alive, we can have life as well. Even as they're being marched off into execution, they're oozing joy and their lips are proclaiming, even as he beat death, so shall we. His destiny is our destiny. There's really only one explanation that explains why we're here today. Whether or not you believe the resurrection happened, those original Christians who were there, they most certainly did. In which case, our greatest enemy, death, really has been conquered. So let's go back to where I started. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Have you stepped into a relationship with Christ yourself? That's what I really want for you. Because you don't have to keep living like it's Good Friday, living in hopelessness, even though our world is crumbling in. Yes. And it always has been and it always will be. And maybe it's crumbling even more and faster these days. But you could live with hope that sustains you throughout, right to the very end. And that's what I saw in my mother-in-law, Wanda. Her life for 79 years, her doctrine and her lifestyle, they synced up. Even through those 13 years of, of rough treatments that she would go through for the lung cancer, even right in the final year, which is the, the, the toughest year, even in the final months, which were the toughest months. And, and towards the end, she and I had occasion to, 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 to sit together. And I said, Grammy, would you want to talk any about your service? Because I suppose when the day comes, I'll, I'll probably be playing an integral role in your funeral. She said, yes, Ken, I would like to talk about that. So I got my pad and started to take some notes and asked her things that she would want. And I, I said, though, I said, Grammy, I'm just curious. Since we kind of both know where it seems this is going, how do you feel about this? And that little lady in stature looked at me with all of her big, bold faith. And she says, well, Ken, I'm not worried because I trust in him. And Isaiah 26 tells me that he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on him. And that was her verse right through to the very end. So that's why I said when I started, in some ways I feel today, certainly, yes, like the preacher. But as much or even more this time, as a witness, having seen with my own eyes, up close, the power of the resurrection and the transforming work it does when we put our trust and our faith and our life and our future into his hands.
And that's what I want for you, for all of you. And the way that we mark it, incidentally, is, is when we take that step of faith and say, I'm stepping into Christ, we, we celebrate it in water baptism. Because what we're seeing in baptism is that even as Jesus had to die and then was laid into the tomb and then on the third day was raised to life, what we're saying is the old me without Christ living side has been laid beneath the waters, buried, and raised to life, full of the Holy Spirit living inside me. And we've had any number of people here in the recent weeks and months who've taken that step of faith. And on Easter, we like to show them and celebrate what God is doing. And so why don't you take a look right now at the screens. When a person realizes, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of God's grace. I need help. I need a savior. And they come to a point of decision, a point of deciding, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord of my life. Christians had a, a service to mark that moment. And that's what this is right here. When Manny was asked, why do you want to be baptized? Her reply was, I've never been baptized before, nor have I publicly declared my faith. And I feel it's important that I do so. Caden is in third grade and he became a believer when he first started coming to FaithBridge. One of his favorite truths is Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all. Maria believes that she's seeing how God works in her life by the changes in her behavior and the positive changes in her marriage. But more than just a better relationship with her spouse, she was turned on to the awesomeness of a relationship with God and accepted Christ into her heart and life. Aubrey accepted Jesus on Christmas 2020. Her favorite part of the Bible is John 3.16. For me, baptism symbolizes a new beginning with your life in Christ. And having that concrete, unchanging grounder in a world that's always changing has meant so much to me. And I am all in in Christ. I am so thrilled to introduce Amber. My name's Heather. My faith has grown in knowing her. And I just love how our faith is living. In coming to Faith Bridge, he began to see what being a real Christian was all about. This is Christian Linville, and I have the honor to get to introduce her today. And she wants this day, this time of being baptized, to be her public declaration of Jesus, I'm with you in this. Brett is here today to declare publicly that he is giving over all of his life to Jesus. I want to bury the guilt, shame, and condemnation through faith and leave it under the water. That old me that didn't have Christ living inside of me, that old me has been laid to rest. And the new me, full of Christ living inside through his Holy Spirit, that's raised to life.
Hey, I want you, I want you to take that step. Take out this card. You should have sat on one or sat beside one, and if you need one, the ushers in both rooms will be glad to pass these out. Just wave at one. You're going to see there's four boxes. And I want you to, I want you to let's, let's, let's go through this together. Nobody's moving yet. I, I, this is an important moment. The first one is about trusting in Christ, accepting Christ as your Savior. Because I just have a feeling in a crowd this size today, there's some of you who say, you know, I think it's time. And I want to take that step of faith. I want to put my life into the hands of Christ and trust him as my savior. And if you would do that, why don't you just check that first box? And in a minute, we're going to say a prayer and I'll just kind of guide you and give you a sample of how you could talk with him and, and, and invite him to come and be your savior. And then the second box follows and that's the baptism box. And you could check that one too. Some of you have been You've professed your faith in Christ. You just never got baptized. So maybe you just go to box two. And then there's a third box. And that's the box that we call the, the come look and listen box. You say, what's a come look and listen? I just suspect that there's some of you who came and you're like, I didn't really come planning on getting anything out of this. But actually, it has got me thinking just a little bit. I hope so. And so while I'm not saying you have to trust in Christ today, if that's not where you're at, don't pretend. You don't have to say yes, but do you have to say no? What if you said maybe? And what if you said, okay, you know what? I'll give them a chance. And for the next, I don't know, four, five, six weeks, you just said, I'll come back. I'll be a part of, uh, and I'll come to worship. I'll listen to the teachers. And God's given us so many gifted teachers here. Yo, we have the most gifted teaching team. And special, next week is a particularly special. Beth Moore is going to be here. And what a treat that'll be. And so why don't you come back and take the journey and just step into the circle and even experiment praying. Even if you say, I don't even believe it. I really does anything. Why don't you put aside your skepticism and just say, okay, Lord, I'm going to talk to you actually believing there might be something out there on the other side and just see if he doesn't show up and meet you. And then there's a fourth box because some of you are like, I don't really need any of these boxes because I already did all those things. And that'd be a good box for you. Why don't you commit to praying for those who are making progress in their faith journey today, especially for those who are taking that come look and listen challenge. You fill that out. And at the end, you can hand those to the ushers on your way out. I'm going to say a prayer for us. And then Lizzie and the team on this side and Anna on the other side, are going to lead one more song. And so let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for the good news. Thanks for Easter, the time that we get to celebrate and remember really the center most important thing about our faith. Forgive us, Lord, for treating Easter sort of like an event, a one-day event, when the truth of the matter is Easter is every day for all of us who've really stepped into that faith. Help us, Lord, to appropriate that resurrection hope, that life, that promise 
into our lives daily and to bring our lives into conformity with it and your word, Jesus. Now I pray, Lord, for those who are here who would say, today's my day. Today I'm stepping across the line of faith because I need to do that. And if you say, I don't even know really how you do that, you could just pray to the Lord something like this. Jesus, I'm inviting you to come into my heart to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, to fill me with your Holy Spirit, to show me what does it even mean to follow you and to teach me what that means and give my life new purpose and direction so that today is not just a one-day event, so that this is not just an hour of, of excitement and joy and hope, but that I might step into the fullness of life that you came to offer. Today's my Easter. And maybe you're here and you say, I've, I've actually done that before, but maybe you've kind of gotten away from it. Maybe it's especially during the pandemic, it's been a while and here you are and you're like, oh, this is good for my soul. It feels like my soul's been a little parched and Jesus says, hey, I came to bring you streams and rivers of living water through my Holy Spirit. I can flow inside of you and you'll experience what you've never experienced before. Why don't you come back? And now make this the last and get back on that pathway so that our souls might be revived to life, full of that living water that you came to bring. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.